And I'm joined by my colleague, Mary Fafleese Dunkel, who's also a political science professor in addition to a historian and a sociology professor as well and the study abroad coordinator and probably a few other things I'm leaving out. Um, so today, as you can see from the title, we wanted to talk about some of the implications of a, a graying or aging society. And um, we only have about 50 minutes today. We have some information that we'd like to present, but we'd also invite you to ask any questions um, and, and kind of make this uh, interactive um, with any comments or questions that you have as well. Um, because this is a huge topic that we could spend uh, a lot of time on. So we're just kind of giving you a brief introduction to some of the implications. So to start off with, we wanted to provide a little bit of context, a little bit of uh, information, key information about um, how we are changing as a society. So I'm sure you've heard of this term before, um, but the idea is that we have different age cohorts in America based on the time frame that we were born. And one of the biggest demographic um, groups that we have based on generations is what we call the baby boom generation because there was this huge baby boom after World War II. So beginning in 1946, for about 18 years later, we had approximately um, a baby born something like every eight seconds. Um, to kind of put this into scale, uh, before the baby boom started, we had about 150 million Americans. But over the next 18 years, we added um, 75 million um, more Americans through this, the birth of the baby boom generation. So kind of the idea of a government of, by, and for the people um, that we call, the, uh, that we would describe our system as being democratic, that we'd want to kind of uh, understand how the people are changing. And it had, the, the baby boom generation had a huge impact on the way in, and they're going to have a huge impact on the way out. <laughs> So they currently uh, range in age anywhere from on the young end of the baby boomers to 58 to the older end of age 77. And over the next few years, all of these baby boomers are going to be eligible for both Social Security and Medicare. So my, I, I did some did a little mistake with my slide here. And so this one slide actually got a little bit out of order here, but um, just to kind of explain, cause I'm sure a lot of you have heard these terms, but you guys are all young, right? So the idea of what is Social Security and Medicare, if I asked most of you what it was, you probably would be like, well, I've heard the terms before, but not quite sure what they are. <clears throat> so if you didn't know what they were before, you know that you're assigned a Social Security number when you're, when you're born. Um, but Social Security was created during the Great Depression, basically to kind of provide a cushion um, for elderly people who had no pension. When, when the Great Depression was going on, people were finding themselves in really dire circumstances. And so Social Security was to provide basically a monthly, pe monthly pension for life. And even if you look at like the, the advertisements for it, it was like, you know, a, a monthly check to you for the rest of your life um, over the age of 65. Well, take a guess what the life expectancy was around that time. If you were to take a guess. Big guess, big wild guess here, what it was roughly around that time. Around 65, yeah. So it wasn't like people were expecting they were going to live for a super long time. Thank you. Um, so the idea that, you know, they're probably not going to live for too long, but we'll give them that, that monthly, monthly check, right? And that's based on the idea of, of people paying in via their own taxes and also your, your, your employer, right, also paying those taxes. Then around 1965, there's a realization during kind of the second, you could almost call it like this, like the Great Society, almost like the Second New Deal, if you will, 
um, for a need for, for medical care, for health care. And there was a, a push during both eras to try to get full government health care for everybody, but neither one of those ever materialized. But um, during Lyndon Johnson's administration, they were able to get Medicare, which is health care, health insurance for everyone over the age of 65. So regardless of your income status, regardless of, of who you are, whatever, if you are over the age of 65, you get Medicare. If you are, if you ever heard the term Medicaid, that is for people who are, are unable to afford health insurance, so you can get that Medicaid for that. So if you ever heard Medicare, Medicaid, think of care for the elderly and aid for those who are unable to afford it. That's how I always try to tell people to remember it. Do you mind if I ask about the, the thoughts on retirement? So since we're talking about this, um, we were, Professor Navratil and I were kind of thinking that we could maybe ask you guys some questions. Um, what are your thoughts on a retirement age? How many of you would support the idea of a mandatory retirement age for everybody? Like, so from every job, you have to pretty much, you have to retire at some point in time. Like, can you get, just see a show of hands? We don't have to say that what the, the, the age should be, but do you report, do you, do you support a mandatory retirement age just by a show of hands? That's a pretty good, okay. Thank you. So for those of you who do, is there a number you have in your own mind of what you think that number of what that age should be? that people should retire at? Do you have an idea in your mind? Yes, sir, Abdul? Okay, 65, 70, and you're saying like across the board for pretty much all professions, okay? Anyone else? Yes. It could vary between professions, okay. So if you're a pilot, right, you're commanding a plane, scary, right? You wanna make sure you're kind of on top of your game, right? Now, what about if we're talking about for politicians, for those who are in government service, whether it's on the local level, state level, or federal level, um, would you support a, a mandatory retirement age for people who are running for political office or people who are in political office? How many of you would, would be in favor of a mandatory retirement age for that? Okay, that's pretty much almost everybody. Okay, all right. Okay, thank you. That's faster than doing a survey. That would have taken a long time. All right. Yeah, so just a few more stats about our aging uh, baby boomers. Um, one thing to keep in mind is just the birth rate that we had at our peak um, was approximately uh, twice of what it currently is right now, of 23.7 births per 1,000 people back at the height of the baby boom generation, um, whereas we're only at about 11 births per 1,000. Demographic prediction of, of when this is gonna happen, but. Um, over the coming years and about the next decade, the number of people aged 65 years and older are going to outnumber those who are age 18 and below. So now it's kind of to the point that you were just uh, pulled on about our aging leaders. So um, these are more uh, as a discussion guide for us, so it's, it's fine that you're not able to read these on the on the PowerPoint. But the, the first one is basically telling us how, yeah, they have great vision. Um, so the first one is basically talking, so we have 100 senators, and about two-thirds of our senators are um, age 60 and older. And then we have uh, 20 members of our Congress. We have 435 members of Congress, so if we take those 100 senators, uh, and I'm sorry, we have 435 members of the House of Representatives, so we have 535 total, and um, we have 20 members of Congress who are at least age 80 and older. And then it looks like, barring any surprises, we're gonna have a rematch in 2024 with uh, current President Joe Biden, and then uh, former President uh, Donald Trump, 
as our two major nominees for the Republican and Democratic Party, and whichever of those two candidates wins will be at a minimum of, of 80 years old when they are president. And then one last point we wanted to make with our aging leaders is that um, the baby boom generation just makes up just over 20%. It's about 20.6% of all Americans, but they make up of about half of our, uh, of our members of Congress. So they are really disproportionately uh, represented in Congress compared to the total demographics of the US population. Yeah, the next slide was about the pros and cons. So those of you, we had a, a, a brief question about whether we should have a mandatory retirement age for our elected officials. Um, and I, I do think that it's important to kind of put into context, we don't have time for a full discussion on this, but a little bit of some of the benefits of what some of our senior um, elected officials might bring, as well as some of the drawbacks. Um, so, and I'm also curious, we, both of us would like you all to feel free to participate. So even with a slide previously that showed um, Joe Biden and Donald Trump on there, the idea about having, you know, two, a presidential candidates, one that's 77 and one that is that's 80 years old, just kind of what, are, what, what your thoughts are on it. Um, and uh, if you want, if you want to kind of chime in, does anybody have any thought any initial thoughts on the idea of having presidential candidates that age? And, and if you want to relate that to the idea of pros and cons, like, do you see pros and cons of, thank you, thank you, sir pros and cons of having uh, presidential candidates of that age, or is it all cons for you, or do you see some pros to it as well? What are your thoughts on the idea of having, um, having, uh, I feel like there's pros and cons for having like uh, government officials being older. Mm -hmm. The pros are, like I think it's mentioned over there, they're more experienced and they're more knowledgeable of the world. Mm -hmm. But uh, the cons are, since the world is changing and there's obviously more younger, more younger people in them, mm -hmm. like they're mostly representing their generation and no one's representing the, the younger generation that's always changing, mm -hmm. especially in these days, like everybody, everything is changing fast. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the pros are their experience and their wisdom of the world mm -hmm. and then their cons are they're probably still stuck in the past and times are changing. And they're not able to see kind of like the way that the way that maybe young people might see it, right? Yep. I can totally relate to that. I was even thinking that uh, this morning just about the idea since I'm not really on social media and feeling a bit like a dinosaur, and a lot of you guys are. So that's that's I think that's a big a major gap, right? Um, and definitely, I think Joe Biden is not somebody who's on social media. Donald Trump is, and so even though three years only separate the two of them as candidates, people perceive. Um, and, and Joe Biden's actually the one that's out there biking and, and, and uh, hiking and constantly do, running and whatever, 80 years old, he's in better shape than I am, I have to say. Um, he is physically, um, people perceive that Donald Trump is the younger candidate, even though he's only younger by three years. But why is that? Maybe it's because he is on, you know, kind of a very, like, because he's a bold speaker, right? He speaks his mind and he's all, all over social media. And so maybe that is why. Whereas Joe Biden is kind of more, much more of an old school politician who does things a lot more behind the scenes. It's not showy. Um, you know, he's getting his things done in a, in a different way. And so if you're not seeing it, you might just think, well, he's just an old fuddy-duddy. Talk about that. Talk about a word being, painting me as a fuddy-duddy. But a word that basically then people's perception, though, is that he is that way. Then he's out of touch, right? Um, yes, sir. Go ahead, Mama. Yeah. Hold on. Wait for the uh, microphone, Mohammed, please. Thanks. 
<laughs> you guys talking because it's it's being recorded too. So I feel like uh, they also see Biden as like older because like the way he talks, he's just like you can tell like the age is starting to get to him. Sometimes sure. like he's like when he talks, he just starts messing up, or out of nowhere he'll just switch the subject mm -hmm. or just talk about something random. Mm -hmm. So it just seems like he's older and he's like he's at the point where he should like retire basically. Mm -hmm. But Trump, he still has like a like when he talks, like uh, you can, he still knows what he's saying. Like he's smart with his words and mm -hmm. stuff. That's why I guess they see him as younger. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, it's funny. Just in the last was the last week or so, last couple of weeks, Trump's been on the on the circuit, and he's been making a lot of like he didn't say he ran against Barack Obama in 2016, and it was Hillary Clinton. He thought he was in one state versus another state, which is what he exactly accused Joe Biden of doing. He said, you're, you're going to think you're in Idaho when you're in Iowa. He did the, that exact same thing. So, yeah, here, go ahead, Kevin. And I, I don't want to try to dis, uh, you know, ar argue with what you're saying, because I, I do think that's the, the general perception. But I think it's worth pointing out that Joe Biden, and Mary can attest to this, that has had gaffes, like these kind of mental mistakes his whole life. Like he kind of, he speaks first, he doesn't have much of a filter and, and he's had some really historic blunders over his life of saying things that are kind of confusing to the, to the listener. But, um, you know, I, I think the average American would share that perception that you have that, you know, uh, Trump might be a little bit more mentally um, alert and, you know, uh, ha have maybe higher cognitive ability than, than, than Biden. But, you know, the supporters of Biden would also point out that he's been able to go to like two different war zones, um, first president to ever do that recently, um, and has had a lot of accomplishments. But I think the point is, is that there are some trade-offs here, and it's important to kind of grapple with those um, for us as citizens about having such, so many elderly leaders, and not just people who are, who are um, you know, past the age of 65, but in many cases past the age of 80. And uh, that last bullet point there, um, being out of touch with modern technology, um, I can't remember the year, it was a few years ago that there was a uh, Senate uh, committee, if memory serves, uh, looking at technology and, and Facebook, and uh, it'd be a great clip to kind of show, but some of those senators were just so out of touch without, with understanding what you know, social media did and how, how Facebook yeah. works, how technology works, even how the internet works. Um, so it is clear that there's, there's some negatives with um, having such uh, people who are, are past their primes. Uh, so one of the big dimensions that I wanted to bring to this discussion that I think is really going to have a lot of implications for all of us as citizens, as taxpayers, as people who rely on the government to provide services, is just how much of our budget is devoted to those who are age 65 years and older. So as Professor Fafleese mentioned earlier, Social Security is primarily going to those who are at least uh, approximately age 65 years and older. And then Medicare is uh, the healthcare program that goes exclusively to those who are age 65 years and older. Those two programs alone are about, uh, just about uh, four out of every $10 that the government spends. Uh, and so it's just, and it's going to be a growing percentage of what the federal government does, in part because there's so many, about 10,000 baby boomers who are reaching age 65 every single day. So this is just something that, as Professor Fafuis mentioned, these programs passed generations ago, 
but these programs are essentially on autopilot. So regardless of who the president is, regardless of who Congress is, uh, we have, they're called entitlements. You're entitled to these programs by law. So once you reach this age, uh, the government is on the hook for paying these benefits out. Um, so just those two programs we're talking about, just over $2 trillion. And um, that um, some estimates have shown that since 1980, 80% um, of all of the federal spending growth that we've had can be attributed to um, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And as Professor Fafleese pointed out, that goes to uh, lower income individuals for Medicaid. Um, one thing that I wanted to point out as well is I do think that there's kind of a perception, well, like I paid into Social Security, I paid into Medicare, which is true. We, if you look at your paycheck, you'll notice uh, taxes, um, like 6.2% of your paycheck that's going to Social Security, and then your employer matches that, and then it's a, just about 1.3% or something like that for Medicare. Um, the problem is, as Professor Fleece pointed out earlier, initially when these programs were started, we didn't receive these benefits for very long before we passed away. And now um, the average, the typical 65-year-old couple will have at least one person in that couple who will live to the age of 90 or longer. Um, so people are receiving these benefits um, for, for much longer than they ever have because of so many great advances that we've had to technology and the medical profession and um, you know, life expectancies going up, which is a good thing, but just something to keep in mind that on average, um, the average benefit of these two programs, the senior citizens, has tripled in 2022 to 2023 compared to 1960. Um, so the average benefit was about 330,000, now it's over 1.1 million. The other thing to keep in mind is that the, your lifetime taxes of paying into these programs has only paid for, um, you pay in approximately $650,000. This is for the average per, uh, uh, person um, over the course of your lifetime. Um, so you're paying for just about half of the benefit that you're receiving. Um, so. Uh, just a couple of these stats to keep in mind. This is one of the reasons why this budget, um, why the United States has such a budget problem right now. We're borrowing about um, a third of every dollar that we spend. We spend about $6 trillion uh, and we have a $2 trillion deficit. So we have to borrow $2 trillion just to be uh, spending the money that we currently have um, through these programs. So um, this isn't really sustainable in the long term. It is probably going to require additional tax increases or benefit cuts. But uh, I'll kind of put a pin on that for today because uh, later this month on the, on the 30th of November, we're gonna have an uh, event looking more directly at the budget. I can use this one, thank you. So along, though, along that same line here, um, this is a picture of an awesome TV show from the 1980s called The Golden Girls, which was, which was great. And the funny thing is, those ladies were maybe like in their upper 50s when this show was on. They weren't even, they, I mean, but you know, in my mind, they were, you know, in their 80s and 90s. Um, <clears throat> but along that same vein, uh, there's, there's a major issue. Is our infrastructure keeping up with the, the rapid rate that our elderly are getting older? And you, at your age, right, for most of you, you're like, this is not even, I don't have a gray hair on my head, lady. Like, why are, you, why are you telling me all these things? Like, I could care less, right? How many of you have grandparents that maybe live with you or have lived with you in the past? Anybody have any? 
so few, few of you have. So you've maybe helped care for them before, or you, or if they're in good health, you just have them living with you. So you might kind of see some of what it means when you when you do get older. And there's some major problems that we're going to have as a society as our our as they continue to get older. Because even though they have a pension system, how far is that pension system going to be able to cover? Because I can tell you this anecdotally and on a personal level, and just also just on a, on a you know factual level. Um, the idea of people that, as they get older, they're going to need more and more help inside the home and outside the home. Now, your benefits that you have with, with Medicare cover a certain portion of what you have, but beyond that, pretty much if you need, let's say, a private caregiver, you're on your own. And if you can't cover that, and it's expensive, you guys, it's very, very expensive. So the average, I, I put on here, this is in the U.S. on an average. It's about $16 an hour for a caregiver to afford a private caregiver in the home. Um, that's, again, an average across the United States. Around here, you're looking at about $20 an hour. So at $25 an hour, if it's maybe on the, in, the, in the evening, in the evening or on the weekends. So again, if you add that up, and if you need someone to cover someone overnight on a night shift, or you need 24-hour-a-day coverage, and this is private care, it's coming out of, out of your own wallet, right? It's coming out of your own bank account. That money goes fast. And so for most people, they, they, they end up running out of money. And the way that it works, if you have to go into a retirement home, um, basically they, you know, they kind of plow through whatever money you have, and then if eventually you end up on, on Medicaid, a government Medicaid, which is, the, again, the other program, um, and the government helps to su subsidize your, your care. Um, needless to say that your care is kind of iffy, and I'll be honest with you, I think your care is iffy regardless of whether you're in an, an awesome state-of-the-art home, and if you're in a home that maybe isn't, is, you know, um, private or whether it's even more, if it's, it's by uh, Medicaid paying for it. So th this is a, a major issue that we're going to have. First of all, we have to have enough workers to be able to provide this service, right? So for many of you, if you're going to college, you're probably not going to be thinking, well, I'm going to become a caregiver. But you may end up becoming a caregiver whether you want to be or not, because if you're taking care of family members, whether it's your parents or your grandparents or whoever it might be, um, you're going to end up doing double duty in your own jobs as well as taking care of family members too. Um, I'm really painting a really nice rosy picture of everyone's future, aren't I? But this idea of this sandwich generation, right? Um, that you're caring for your children and caring for your, for your parents at the same time. Bless you. And there's a point in time where you kind of find yourself becoming your parents' parent. You have to kind of, and, and if you're lucky enough that your parent is in good health and they're in, in good cognitive health, then, then you're good. But for some of us, it, it ends up being, it's, it's a great responsibility. So how do you afford to pay for it? Um, and, and basically what happens to them? Where does that person go? Um, do they end up going into, into a, a healthcare facility or do they end up staying at home? And the challenges that comes with that. If a person's in their home, right, with, with the cost of housing right now and inflation rates and, and, and interest rates, if they have to, if they have to sell their house, I've, I have a, some relatives right now who are in this, this boat where they have to pretty much get out of the house because it's, it's three levels and there's no bathroom on the first floor. Where do they go? They're going to sell their house, probably not get enough that they would need to buy a new house, but they need a new house that's on like a ranch. Right, so how do they do that? So affordable housing is a major issue for everybody, but particularly for the elderly, it's a big problem. So again, I know for a lot of you, you're like, this is not, this is not my issue now, but I, I, it's, unfortunately, it's an issue for all of us. Um, I think I'm, for right now, if it's okay, I'm gonna come back to this, the, Har the Harvard Longitudinal Study, if we have time for this, um, but I'd rather get more to this, because we wanted to, when we were talking about this, the concept that Professor Nevertol and I had, we're like, we don't want to be depressing all the time. <laughs> we feel like, we're, we feel like we're, we're, we're oftentimes introducing, you know, because this kind of reality, right? But that, what, what kind of solutions can we look at, and what kind of positive things can we look at?
And so if any of you are on Netflix recently, have any of you come across this documentary about um, living longer, about like the, the, um, the blue zones that exist throughout the world? Have any of you ever, ever heard of the concept of, the blue, of blue zones? Okay, so blue zones are places in the world where there is an inordinate amount, a higher amount of people who are living into their 90s and their 100s. So the, 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 the wonder is kind of like, how do they get to this point? How do you have so many people that are living um, to, you know, in their 90s and they're so healthy and they're in their, their 100s and they're so healthy? So these places are, I've got the, the, the original kind of five listed on there. Um, and if you have Netflix, I highly recommend that you watch this because it's, it's a pretty incredible story. One of them is here in the United States. There's actually more now, but the, of the original five, one of them is here in the US. Two of them are both in the, it's not a coincidence that two of them are in the Mediterranean. Um, for those of you who are also kind of from coming from Mediterranean countries, that's not a, not a coincidence given the lifestyle and the food that's eaten, et cetera. Um, and so they're also listed on the map here. So I'm, I've got a, uh, some clips here from the documentary that we'd like to show you guys to kind of have it kind of as a jumping off point to talk about it. So there is time to, this guy here, I'm just going to, I won't play the whole thing because it would take too long, but this man here is actually a man from Ikaria, Greece, one of the Blue Zones. And when the filmmaker first met him, um, he, he heard the story about how when he was 66 years old living in the U.S., he was diagnosed with lung cancer. So he's like, you know, I'll leave, I'm going to go back home to Ikaria. I'm going to go home and die with my family and, and go see my friends again, whatever. So he went back. He was told, you've got six months by three different doctors. So he plants a vineyard. He's like, I won't live to you know, harvest the grapes, but my family will, it's fine. That was when he was 66. At 102, this filmmaker met him. So he outlived all the expectations that the, that the doctor had for him. So wh why is that? So I'm gonna play some of this for you now and we'll, and we'll talk about it here.
Thank you. He actually ends up creating, um, trying to create some blue zones, because you might say to yourself, well, that's great. All this is wonderful. How do you create this in the United States? Um, so he looks for some communities where they could actually make that work, and they have now established multiple communities throughout the United States where this does work. So just kind of initially, because um, I've got another clip to show you as well, but what are your, any, any thoughts on this initially about the idea of, of what, this, what this man is saying? Give or take a couple of them. You don't, you don't have to like, love them all, but any thoughts on, on, uh, on what he's saying? Yes, sir. I mean, I agree for like him saying that like if you walk a couple of steps, you see like cookies or chips. And he was showing out about uh, how like there was a McDonald's drive-through or like a, like any fast food drive-through. And him saying that like more plant-based diets and like all that food looks delicious, even though most of it is plant-based. Like I agree on that too. Right, so, so like Mediterranean, like Arabic food has a lot of like plant-based diet, right? Same thing with, with a lot of Greek food, um, right? And so, and it is true, right? Everywhere you go here, it is hard. And one of the things that's also discussed is about how in the United States, it's difficult that anywhere you go, that, that most of our highways, when they pass like you know, the, the Interstate Highway Act after World War II, um, basically connected all of our, our you know, suburbs to the cities, but made it much, much harder for us to be able to walk. Think about it, how much do you, I mean, if we all live in, most of us live in like the suburbs around here, how much walking do you do around your house? You really don't. And, and the people in most of these communities, the, the ones that, the, the gentleman, I saw that Mohammed, you're like, oh my God, the guy was holding himself up by his hands. He was about 95 years old. Um, the first guy they showed that was doing the rope around the, um, I think he was trying to rope a cattle, that was in Costa Rica. That man was 101 years old. The first thing, first vision you have of him is him riding in on a horse at full gallop and he's 101 years old. I've never seen anything like that. Um, but here, I mean, obviously we're not, if, if you're in some places you can do that, right? But just even the simple act of moving, but not moving necessarily um, just for the purposes of exercise, just moving in your natural everyday life. Yeah, please. Oh God, yeah, Douglas, you had it too. We'll go ahead first, then yeah, yeah, you I think that like, it totally makes sense. Cause I feel like here in like the US and in the States, we kind of like are sporadic with what we do each and every day. It's like in social media, like, oh, I want to do that today. And then you don't, like, you don't do it the next day. But in places like the Blue Zones, they kind of pace themselves. They have a strict curricular and follow that for, you know, 100 years. Mm -hmm. And it kind of shows that your body gets used to that. Your body's like, I really like this. Let's yeah, keep absolutely. doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I agree about the physical thing he said. Basically, like, uh, here in America... I'm really not doing like any physical activity unless I go to the gym and then work out or play basketball. But like, besides that, like it's either anywhere we go, we either go car or we just chill at home. But like back home, like every time like I visit there, I don't touch a car a single time. Every single place I go, I'm walking, I'm running. And I also see like every time I come back from like when I'm over there, I'm much more fit and healthy compared to when I come here. I come back here and I start gaining weight because everywhere I go is just fast food. Mm -hmm. And then like exercising is only at the gym. It's not really outdoors. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Um, when I um, got, we got married, like I got married about 20 years ago and my husband and I um, had talked about like, maybe we would move, you know, far away and like somewhere warmer. Um, you know, we could do anything. And we made that conscious decision to live um, in Chicago and stay here forever. This is where our family's from. Um, we made a conscious decision to be near our parents, to have a bigger family. Um, 
And we recently were in the sandwich generation, so we're raising four kids, and our dad, right, my dad just moved in. Um, so it has been, yeah, but it's, I guess I just wouldn't speak to the, like, intentionality. You know, um, we intentionally created a situation where we'll encourage our kids, hopefully, we'll be like, we'll watch our grandkids, like, but you, you got to stay close-ish, you know. Um, and we have no, my grandmother lived with us growing up, and we're trying to role model a situation of like not warehousing your old people. Um, and so I think a lot of it is su being super intentional and it's like way easier said than done because there's a lot to be said for moving to a warmer climate or where there's better jobs or wherever. But we were like, nope, um, we need to maintain those family relationships. Um, so I think the intentionality has to like be there to like, you know, support your family and choose to be near each other and invest in one another. And just a quick comment to your point um, that we're undergoing this huge transformation in our society. And so multi-generational living can have be very beneficial too. It can be hard for those of us who have tried to have a parent at our house who might need a lot of care to also be taking care of a little one. But there's so many benefits that um, the grandparents might be able to help impart some wisdom or just that connection and memories for the younger generation. And so it is the, that intentionality. I think it's just important that as a country, we're intentional too, that just as when these baby boomers were born, we had to, we had to build schools like crazy, um, hire teachers um, to, to help um, prepare for this new huge demographic to be coming through um, the, the pipeline. And, and on the back end, we're gonna need to do that too, or be thinking about how we can help integrate them like many other societies do um, at home, living with their family, in these multi-generational um, uh, living opportunities. Mm -hmm. So great observation. Yeah. On the other one, just too, uh, with your point about um, walking around, um, that so many society, like a, a lot of the blue zones happen to live at an elevation too. So when you're walking around in your town, it's, 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 it's on a hill. Some of them are pretty steep. And so it doesn't even require walking miles and miles if it's sometimes at a, a certain elevation, certain uh, grade that you're walking up and then just a lot of it is just playful like where there it could be gardening but it could be other activities where you don't it's not like running on a treadmill or doing a lot of the things that we do at a traditional gym yeah, well, that's a great point and Sardinia is the one where like they're the, every time these older men they're both in their 90s they're going to do their kind of their afternoon constitutional right they're walking around and meeting up with friends everywhere they go they have to walk up kind of a hill and to your point, Mohammed, same thing. When I go to Greece, I, you know, we're eating a lot. We're eating at night, at like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, because that's when people go out to dinner, which my in-laws who are not Greek were completely freaked out by that. <laughs> they couldn't believe that. But I, you, I never gain weight. I end up usually losing some weight because you're constantly, it's that, that little burst of activity. It's not that you're getting on a treadmill or that you're going to a gym. It's the constant movement that you're doing throughout the day. But even if you live in the city though, right? I noticed that if I'm downtown in the city staying with my, my niece or something, I'm walking around a lot more. And just moving and getting a lot more steps in the day than I do when I'm here because it's hard to walk around. You, I, I'll be honest, you look weird when you're walking around here. Like I used to live in Palos Park, which I was in an area where you could walk to Jewel and walk to Walgreens. And my nieces and nephews would tease me, like, "Thema, you look homeless because you're walking around with a cart." Because <laughs> I'd go to the grocery store to try to bring my groceries home. They're like, "You look like a homeless person," which I, I don't mean that isn't offensive thing, but you know, I looked odd compared because nobody does that out here. So to the points that you were all making, I want to, I want to. Um, play another clip here about, um, this is about Singapore and how Singapore kind of transformed its society, echoing kind of a lot of the points that you guys were making. 
A particular community where, where it's talking about generational living. These are actually seniors who are exercising, but I'm trying to get to the one where um, he, this, a father, a grandfather who's living with his grandchildren. Um, I think it's actually right, just, there he is. So this is precisely what we were just talking about, right? The idea of this generation, the generational living, and and um, so we, we wanted. I think that kind of speaks for itself. So we wanted to open it up to, to more of your kind of comments and questions. So since we still have a few minutes here left, because we want to hear from all of you too. So yeah, please. I'm I'm, I'm coming. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I think uh, a part when he mentioned earlier the the four like major things of living in the blue zones. You mentioned like exercise, nutrition, but you also mentioned like faith and like hang and hanging out with your family. Yes. And I feel like that's an important part, especially if you want to like live a long life, 100%. because uh, a lot of people, especially here in America, once they're like grandparents or parents and get older, they usually send them to like a, a nursing home or anything, and they don't really live like ha the end of their life as happy as they would with their family. And I feel like when you're happier, you live longer. And since with your, with your, when you're with your family and like spending quality time, it also like attracts like eating together and uh, like mo moving around. And I feel like hanging out with the family is a uh, major key yeah. to like everything. Yeah, keeps your mental acuity going. And to be fair, there are situations where people like they, they don't, you know, if there's a situation of like memory loss, where sometimes you kind of have to, to, to like provide that care. Um, so I don't mean to like say that we're, you know, to be judgmental of those who have to, but there is, it's, it is proven though that, to your point though, um, that people do live longer when they have more community around them. That is just proven fact that people that are, that's in a Harvard longitudinal study that I was gonna talk about before, prove that. And when people are around other people, they do tend to be happier and the people that are happier tend to live longer. That's just, it, it, right, it's almost like duh, right? It makes sense, right? It's so simple that it just makes so much sense. Thank you. Others? So one of my coworkers is 65, um, we're servers, and like she's so strong, like she just works like everybody else. I forget that she's like older, mm -hmm. and I always ask her like, how does she do it? And she always tells me that she goes on walks every morning, mm -hmm. she drinks like lemon water every morning, and like she just takes care of herself. And she's had breast cancer like twice. Mm -hmm. She's just very strong, wow. yeah. So she's keeping herself active and keeping herself fit and moving around. And yeah. um, I, I used to always tell my students about my aunt who was 103. She just passed away last year. She was so sweet. I wish I had her gene pool, but I don't. But she would talk all the time about, she always had a plan every day. She'd be like, well, today I'm gonna, when she could still bake, I'm gonna make cookies. At 102, she was still making cookies. She always had a purpose. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wash my sheets today, even if it was a small one. And she kept herself connected, even if it was by phone, right? Because she couldn't go out and drive, but it, you know, however she could do it. Others, please. That's great, thank you. Other comments about this? Yeah, please, right in the back. Um, my my great-grandma, she lived to 102. I was able to meet her, and she would love cooking. Um, she lived up a hill, and she would go down and up the hill all the time. She loved talking with the community, because it was a small community, maybe like 120 people there. Wow. But she just loved going and like, 
giving out food to like her neighbors, going down the hill to her neighbors downstairs, like down the hill. And yeah, she passed away two years ago. But um, yeah, she was a really active lady. She loved talking to like, if you gave her the time, she will be with you from like morning all the way till like midnight just talking. So yeah, I feel like that has a lot to do with it too. Absolutely. She had purpose, right? She kept herself and yeah, yeah. she's on really special. We've listed some of the, the, the main points up here, if you, if you want to take a look at this. And these are the things that were, that were talked about. Um, you know, and maybe they, they may not all work for you, right? But even if it's the idea of a faith community, it might just be a different type of community. If, it's, if you know, faith community is not your thing. Um, or drinking wine, maybe it's coffee, right? Maybe you find what kind of works for you. But the idea of, of having that, I think, that social circle, right? Because all those things invite kind of a, a socialness. I love the Harahachi, um, the 80% um, full rule that you, that the Japanese do, where you, you stop eating when you're 80% full. Um, that's a, it's a really hard thing to do, especially if you're eating a lot of food with, with um, additives and things in it that can encourage you to keep eating. Um, that's, a, that's a really hard thing to do. But if you're eating more slowly and you're taking your time, you know, you don't, you don't consume it. And we're in a, a, a society where we eat it so fast, right? We consume it so quickly, we have to go on to the next thing. Um, how many of you eat and in, in are on your phones at the same time? Put your phone away while you're eating. Talk to somebody. Yeah. Yes, please. So, so I came in a bit late, but based off of all I've heard so far, I think it's also a really good thing to look at how um, Europe kind of has their lifestyle and how things are there. Because every time I've ever traveled over there, life slows down, but at the same time, it's like, you see people fill that time with going out, walking around, talking to people, like, and it does at the end of the day, you see that they're a lot happier, a lot healthier, mm -hmm. and it's something so simple for them. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's like, we have to actively put the effort in for something that for them is so effortless, Definitely. but it does really make a big difference at the end of the day. So, right. Right. yeah. Okay, okay, I was just gonna say, so basically, I'll make one last comment, make this fast, because I know we have to end this, but it's what the, the gentleman in the documentary talks about, that we have to just, we can't necessarily change people's minds, you just have to change their environment. So this would probably have to happen right on a, on a community level, working its way up, but it can happen. If you look up blue zones in the United States, you'll find places in the U.S. where this is already happening, so I very much encourage you to do it. So, And just to kind of connect a few of those comments of maybe the intentionality and what government subsidizes. They were talking about subsidizing brown rice versus what we subsidize here of corn and corn syrup and how we subsidize building um, highways and interstates and, and not as much sidewalks in our communities and so forth. So something to be thinking about as a citizen of, 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 of what government, how government spends its money. I uh, really want to thank all of you for your questions and comments. It was great to have you here today. Um, and thank you for Mary, and thank you for the library and Troy for hosting us. Take care, everyone. Thank you,